Blog Talk Radio. Come on. 
answer right, you're African, and don't you forget that. Welcome to Africa on the Move. As your host, Brother Africa, it is always an honor and a privilege to come to your homes this evening where we can speak truth to power and to provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation, that to help liberate your people and to help liberate humanity from all of the various forms of oppression. We welcome you on the 21st day of March 2021 to Africa on the Move, and our theme for today is What's Going On, Past, Present, and Future. That's right. We can discuss what's going on in the, during the past, the present, and the future, and we'd like to have you to participate by calling in at 323-679-0841, hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Like always, the agenda for today will include an introduction of our analysts and panelists, followed by what's going on in your world and the community, and then we have a discussion of very articles and ideals as it relates to our theme tonight, what's going on, past, present, and future. So let's get started with our party by always introducing our political panelists and analysts for today's program. At this point in time, we'd like to bring in Brother Haki, and we would like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My, na- <clears throat> my name is Haki Kamafi Mashoki, Colonel with African Awareness, and of course, you know my thing is institution building. But having said that, Brother Africa, one of the things you know I find extraordinary, when we talk about the wealth deficit existing in society, many people think that the wealth deficit is a result of individual, you know, corrupt or racist individuals formulating policies uh, to ensure wealth division or wealth uh, inequality in society. But the bottom line is that the government pays a huge part in terms of wealth inequality in society. And so I thought I'd talk briefly about the history in a language which everybody can understand in terms of the history of wealth inequality uh, in society. Now, check this out, Brother Africa. Now, wealth creation is as American as cherry pie, according to pundits. However, when, what happens when the financial apparatus is not accessible, systematically or otherwise? In the case of Africans in the U.S., access to wealth has been complicated by systematic, by systematic barriers, corporate interests, and behaviors permitted to the restoration of Africans as second-class citizenry. Strategies utilized within African wealth empowerment have and continues to be spearheaded by government policy, despite claims to the contrary. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 attempted, attempted to end discrimination pertaining to rental, sales, and finances of homes. This legislation was important because home ownership is key to wealth expansion in the U.S. Historically, access to home ownership by Africans was curtailed by government policy that explicitly forbidden the sales and finances of houses to African people. Under the FHA Act or the Fair Housing Act of 1934, the FHA manual is still stating loans to black neighborhoods are simply too risky. Not only were African people denied conventional loans to purchase homes in white neighborhoods, but denied loans to maintain the upkeep of their property in black neighborhoods. This strategy would ensure the value of black homes would not increase in value, but on the contrary, to actually decrease in value. This prevailing predilection to deny Africans access to wealth made it easy for FDR's Fair Housing Act of 1934 to subsidize and finance home construction outside of the city. 
Banks under the auspices of government policy provide a favorable loan specifically to white prospective homeowners while systematically denying Africans access to loans. This arrangement imposed an additional caveat by government and or banks that stipulated, quote, if white homeowners sell their homes to blacks, they automatically forfeit their right to additional FAA uh, loans for mortgages in the future, end quote. Obviously, the FHA Act of 1968 failed to address a structural racism implicit in home ownership. Advancing decades revealed more surreptitious strategies to ensure wealth creation would not benefit African people. These strategies, while most cerebral, performed their functions perfectly. Three of the well-known strategies are the following. Number one, the exclusionary zone ordinance. This ordinance forbid developers from developing care houses in certain areas. Building townhouses increases odds of home ownership and wealth creation in wealthier enclaves. In other words, by having those townhouses in the areas in which uh, the, more, the, the house is more expensive, the schooling is better. But what happens is the, the value of their home automatically increases. So what you don't want to do is to, 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 by, by increasing the, the townhouses, you increase the you increase accessibility of, of housing for, for African people. And that's one of the things you don't want to do. So you want to keep the, the, the home ownership as though as possible and making sure that building in the first place doesn't take place. Secondly, residential lot requirements requires land set on certain amount of acreage. This stipulation ensures valuable land is prohibited. In other words, it goes up in value. It prevents construction of moderate-priced homes. Of course, when you talk about moderate-priced homes, of course, it's, it's spotting out. Certainly, uh, as, as first-time homeowners, African people would be uh, the first to take advantage of moderate-priced moderate homes. And so, therefore, moderate-priced homes is something to be avoided as far as those in power are concerned. And this, this is the way you keep the wealth out of the hands of African people. Now, thirdly, enterprise zones pays developers to renovate one and or older properties in certain areas of the city. Africans are priced out of buying their homes because the banks refuse to lend to Africans regardless of the Africans' income. Now, the impact of these strategies on potential African wealth is enormous. Household net worth for Africans averages about $36,000. Uh, these averages were greatly impacted by the 2008 subprime debacle. The subprime debacle result of financial elites creating a collateral debt obligation or financial instruments which utilize junk bonds, junk bonds, the bonds that have no value at all, which they shouldn't be sold in the first place. But the mere fact that you got so much corruption, uh, they can actually get away with selling bonds that have no value whatsoever. Mortgages, loans, all rolled up into one product. Collateralized debt obligations or CDOs were structured to remove any liabilities and ensure continuous profits. Continuous profits were ensured because it ensured mortgages rates would continually rise. Rising mortgage rates meant higher dividend payments for investors, but default on mortgage loans, resulting in more than 10 million people losing their homes. Ironically, home ownership of all Americans was espoused ad nauseum by media, but what they did not say was that the non-fixed rate mortgage rate pushed by banks and brokers were, in fact, a Ponzi scheme ensuring foreclosure. Currently, household net worth for the U.S. is around $130 trillion. In 2008, household net worth in the U.S. was only $24 trillion. And looking at the huge increase in net worth between 2008 and 2020, the role of home ownership looms large. At the time, African wealth declined by over 51% as a result of losing their homes in the 2008 era. The value of homes after 2008 as a facilitator of wealth increased in value in a way that was unprecedented, according to most recent statistics uh, compiled in 1999. What role, if any, did financial elites conspire to destroy black wealth? 
There is no spoken gun yet. But the turn of events gives rise to speculation justified by U.S. government policy and pursuit of profit at all costs. Currently, Warren Buffett and the Federal Reserve are the biggest landlords, landlords in the U.S. After the 2008 subprime debacle, Buffett purchased most of the homes in foreclosure. Nothing unusual about equity firms um, engaging in disaster capitalism. But taking on debt in the housing market at a time when unemployment is high and wages are stagnant suggests Buffett, along with others like Blackstone, had access to additional information to make this decision to acquire this much wealth. This concern is underscored by the fact in 2019, 17 million homes are currently vacant, mostly owned by Buffett and, and Blackstone Group. Given the leading economic indicators, employment rates and inflation chief among them, the vacancy of 17 million homes, certainly a large number of vacancies, would be expected. Under the normal circumstances, only this much property would be a liability. It would be a tremendous amount of debt that you would incur. Such is not the case of Buffett or, or Blackstone. Both were handed a lifeline. In order to prop up asset prices, assets being property, land, stock, etc., the government has been printing money to benefit asset prices. By propping up asset prices, in this case we're talking about homes, which should have been a liability for owning, by owning all, owning all these properties, is now an asset, meaning the value of these properties continues to increase in value. With the increase in value comes an increase in, in prices to purchase these homes. Now, if, now, even more insidious, Brother Africa, when these properties' values increase, it means the U.S. can use the value increase as collateral to ensure more expensive loans, which contribute to wealth, of further, of further wealth uh, disparity increases in society. Now, this increase in value has led to an increase in, in property land speculation. In January 2021, according to Politico, home sales jumped 24%. These sales are not indicative of an improving economic picture, but indicative of, a wealth, of, of the wealthy engaged in speculation, particularly land speculation, by purchasing two or more houses. True to history, the situation taking shape does not even presume to care about wealth inequality or even less racial wealth inequality. Uh, not, uh, not to worry, there is a solution to Brother Africa. According to Goldman Sachs, an investment bank, they say that they, they, may, they may pledge, they may pledge, 10 billion to change the lives of 1 million black women in the United States. Rest assured, any Goldman Sachs investment will not result in more, in, more will, will result in more inequality, not less. And a company known for abusing its own employers to 100-hour work weeks we can certainly rule out compassion and economic justice as motivation. So clearly we got our work cut out for us in terms of, in terms of uh, building wealth in the society. If we think for one second that the rules that currently exist are in our favor, then we need to think again. And because the rules are in it currently in, exist, in existence and not in our favor, the question becomes, what are we going to do in terms of creating wealth? Well, obviously, in order to do that, then it's going to take some serious uh, brainstorming, some serious thought in terms of how we navigate a system that's diametrically opposed to the interests of African people, particularly when it comes to wealth. And so without that kind of discourse, without that kind of idea in term, ideas in terms of how to move forward in terms of wealth creation, the situation comes where people become even, even that more grim. Because one thing is very, very clear, that if we think for one second that the system as it currently exists gives a damn about the aspirations or the interests of African people or can do the thing to improve the situation in front of African people, then we need to thank again. So clearly we've got that work cut out for us. So we need those institutions, we need those organizations. To, we need those think tanks to, to fundamentally, you know, uh, raise the issues, to, to create ways in which to, to, to deal with those issues and to move forward in society. And we have to have those things because they're so important. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll welcome Brother Moses. Welcome to Africa on the Move. 
Brother Moses. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. And I'm going to do a little something different tonight. Um, Brother Haki has inspired me, and I'm going to do a little something different tonight. Um, the God question, essentially Christianity versus Trotskyism. This is from September the 13th, 2013, a little thing I put together. Dear friends, after much consideration, I have decided to criticize a trend within the working class movement for justice and peace. The Zionists deny the truth of Jesus' teachings on internationalism and against the restoration of Israel as advocated by the Zionists of his day. True, many Trotskyites are anti-Zionists in the political struggle, yet ideologically they have not thoroughly broken with the Jewish traditions. This is manifest in the anarchy of production of childbirth. The most important decision morally one makes is when and under what conditions one should father or mother another human. Christianity is about defense of the fatherland, i.e., the mother consciously declares who is the father of her child. Like Karl Marx and so many others, the children are labeled with the name of their father. This may seem like a small matter, but communism is a godless ideology and has no morality, only ethics. Professional revolutionaries are concerned with getting the job done, and this is the compass by which behavior is judged. V.I. Lennon pointed out that morality belonged to the era of religion. Marx proclaimed religion to be the opiate of the masses. The materialist knows only human behavior, and there is no God. Jesus lived at a time when answering the God question was vital to human progress. Without a vision, the people perish. Without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. Jesus tackled the issues and reconciled humans and God. Quote, I am the way, the truth, and the light, unquote. Wise people recognize the correctness of his position, for it has meaning, especially for the Palestinian people. As Chairman Mao pointed out, the critical contradiction for the international movement of the working class is the national liberation struggle versus imperialism and not the imperialism versus the socialist camp. History has proven the correctness of his view. Trotskyism is the ideology threatening the advancement of the communist movement. Interestingly, the greatest defenders of socialism everywhere except where it exists have now generally accepted the existence of socialism, and there is less talk of, quote, socialism can't exist in one country, deform workers' states, etc., unquote. The attacks of J.B. Stalin and Mao Zedong are the direct result of Trotskyism and played a critical role in the collapse of the Soviet Union. I maintain there is one God, Jesus, and that Mao is his messenger for government. In struggle, Robert. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, you're listening to Africa on the Moon. What we're going to do right now, we're going to revolutionary culture break. And when we come back, we're going to begin our first segment for tonight, which is what's going on in your world and the community. We want you to call in and get involved by calling in at 323-679-0841. We need to communicate. We want to know what's going on in your world and your community, because remember, what information we cannot thank. So we want to communicate. we got to find out what's going on 
in our people community. So we'll be right back, and you are listening to Africa on the Move. Conscious effort. 
for sustained humanity. Human being, human love, on a spiritual tip, so vast, so great, the African embrace. Live beyond, love beyond your skin to where you belong.
on and on. On and on. Right, we're gonna go on and on, on and on. Welcome back to Africa on the Move. Right now, we're going to our first segment. What's going on in your world and the community? We welcome you to call in and share with us what you live in Africa, the Caribbean, North South Central America, Australia, North Pole, South Pole, Europe. This is a platform for you. Call in, share with us. What's going on in your world and in the community? We now start over with Brother Haki. He's going to share, us, share with us what's going on in his world and the community. Brother Haki, the mic is yours. Well, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things that incensed me to no end is this whole notion in terms of justice in America. Despite numerous uh, examples of uh, atrocities committed by the justice system, there's so many in society who contend that, in fact, that uh, America has the most just system in the world. And nothing can be further from the truth. Uh, but recently I came across an, an, an article uh, which sort of shined light on you know, this whole question of whether or not justice really exists in America. Now, the article states, an African by the name of Lamar Johnson was convicted by a St. Louis jury 25 years ago without parole in a trial marred by prosecutorial misconduct and criminal malfeasance. The state star witness initially testified that the identity of the assailant was unknown because the assailant wore a ski mask in which his face was concealed, only his eyes were visible. The state witness, Gary Elkin, after pressure from police, changed his story, stating Lamar Johnson, in fact, killed Marcus Boyd. It was revealed the prosecutor's office paid Mr. Elkin then $4,000 for moving expenses and other miscellaneous items. It does not take a, a genius to figure out a quid pro quo relationship existed between the state and its witness, incentivizing Elkin to lie. This information was never turned over to the defense lawyer, and despite the Brady rule that stipulates the state must hand over exculpatory evidence or evidence that's favorable to the defendant, the state chose not to do so. The only real problem with the Brady rule is enforcement is difficult because enforcing the rule, enforcing the Brady rule because it expects, in large part, the state to elicit information from police which may be favorable to defendants. The whole judicial system is adversarial, and the police are no different. And as an adversarial system, the objective is to win. It's not to reveal the truth. It's not to, to produce justice. It has nothing to do with that. We've got to be very clear on that point. It is this adversarial character of the justice system which accounts for the massive incarceration rate of African and poor people in America. Fortunately, Kim Gardner, a circuit attorney of St. Louis, reviewed the case of Lamar Johnson and concluded the standards used by the state were woefully inadequate and Mr. Johnson's conviction questionable. Ms. Gardner, an African woman, attempted to implement restorative justice by having an innocent man released from prison, but was rebuffed by the state's highest court. The Missouri Supreme Court ruled the circuit attorney, Ms. Gardner, does not have the right or power to overturn a wrongful conviction. Think about that one for a while. The court is acknowledging this conviction was wrong, that it was tainted, but they're they going to proceed with the conviction anyhow. The court went on to say, as an elected prosecutor, if Ms. Gardner prevailed in court, it would far reach implications for future uh, prosecutors. 
uh, conviction integrity units and thus wrongfully convicted people in Missouri, end quote. So what they're saying to you that we know innocent people going to prison, but we're not going to do anything at all in terms of cha- changing that, that paradigm. So that's fine, very, very interesting. So this question in terms of justice in America is, is, is illusionary. Now, conclusion, now, the conclusion I can draw, you know, from this particular case is this, Brother Africa. Uh, the judicial, judicial process is more important than truth or value of the innocent's life. Secondly, maintaining the good standing of the courts, even when courts engage in misconduct or malfeasance, is justifiable. And thirdly, prosecutor's role is to defend the state at all costs. So this notion that if we somehow become educated, become part of the system, that we can change things within, rings very hollow. The bottom line is that once you're part of those formations, part of those structures, you play by their rules. That's the bottom line. And the final analysis, brothers, Brother Africa, is this. Justice is a mere concept. No such justice exists under American jurisprudence, and we should be very clear about that. And I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay, um, this is this is a, a rare night. Uh, um, I'm going to continue in the tradition. Uh, this uh, subject is forward to be pursued but never obtained. To be pursued but never obtained. Dear loved ones, the righteousness of the flesh can never enter heaven because it is carnal. This is why even Jesus felt forsaken during the moment of transition. Jesus committed no sin in God's eye because he was God. Yet men regularly criticize him for sinning. To be in the flesh is to be in sin. His grace has given us what we don't deserve. His mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve. God is our present help in the time of trouble. He never sleeps nor slumbers. Jesus works through people in struggle, Robert. And uh, I'm just thinking that uh, we we got to get uh, to the essential contradictions that people face in life and their day-to-day struggles and somehow reach, reach uh, the hearts and minds of people so that we can... Uh, grasp what's going on around us and take control of what's going on around us. And which means we organize, we have to get organized as a revolutionary force, a revolutionary organization and, and lead the struggle for emancipation of, of the masses of working class people. This is the goal. This is the objective, uh, Everything I do is pointing in that direction, hopefully. Um, and um, I just thank you again uh, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we're going to call this uh, going back down memory lane. And I think tonight is what's going on, past, present, future. That was an interview that was done uh, back in the day with former President Daniel Cagle. He was interviewed uh, talking about the conditions and the struggle in Nicaragua and the world. And we want to go back and just reflect a little bit in terms of what can we learn from this interview. And when we come back, we'd like to have your input to the discussion.
Hello and welcome to Managua. We are at the presidential palace for an exclusive interview with the president of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega. Mr. President, thank you very much. Mark, thank you very much for having me. Mr. President, your country has now been experiencing a serious crisis marked by violence for quite a number of months. A few days ago, for the very first time, the Security Council of the United Nations had talked about the situation in Nicaragua upon the initiative of the United States. The U.S., whose ambassador Nikki Haley said the following, uh, talking about you, she said, Daniel Ortega and Nicolas Maduro are from the same mold marked by corruption. Those are two dictators that are uh, fearing their own people. What do you have to say about this? Well, it really comes as no surprise. When we look at the history of relations between the United States, Latin America and the Caribbean, we can see that there is this ongoing desire to have at the people of Latin America and the Caribbean. And here in this case we're talking about Nicaragua. Is that a sequel? Yeah, it really is. But that's a word against you, a corrupt dictator. This is very serious. Within the United Nations, before the entire world. But with what legitimacy are they talking? What legitimacy? Here we're talking about a power, a world power, that has shown that they are capable of committing genocide. Genocide? Here in Nicaragua? Yes, in Nicaragua and around the world. We're talking about the only global power to have dropped a nuclear bomb, the only one in the world. And here in Nicaragua, they carried out genocide from 1969 through to 1980. The United States were actually sentenced by the International Criminal Court in the Hague. The word genocide is a very strong word, a very specific word. Yes, but the United States were sentenced for terrorism for the military operations in Nicaragua, and they had to pay compensation towards Nicaragua. So with what legitimacy do the United States express themselves on such matters? They actually used narco-traffickers for their own ends. Look at what happened with Reagan and Colonel Oliver North. They used drug money to fund their campaigns. But this is the past. What is now happening? Do you fear a U.S. military intervention in Nicaragua? Once again, is that a possibility? Quite honestly, we are under threat. Military speaking, a direct military intervention from the U.S.? Anything is possible when talking about the United States. Including this? Of course. Of course, military intervention is possible. I would like to get back to what has been happening since April. Now, before we talk of the death toll, I would like to understand what you're talking about. You're talking about a coup. You're uh, referring to an attempted coup, but uh, a coup, uh, this uh, entails a military dimension. So I'd like to know who was behind this. Uh, have there been attacks against uh, strategic uh, premises, against uh, state officials, against you? Because uh, we haven't really witnessed this. We don't really understand uh, where this coup uh, could have been carried out. First and foremost, I would like to say that when we came back to power in 2007, well, it really 
was much the displeasure of the United States and the politicians at the time. And there was conspiration between the United States and Contra. Contra, who didn't want to accept the reconciliation process. The United States armed those people, gathered them together, and actually promoted them via the media in Nicaragua, in Florida, and in Costa Rica. There are actually armed groups in uniforms. Do you have any evidence for this? Yes, of course. We saw it through the media in Nicaragua. Armed people trained in the United States? Of course, of course. Trained groups trained in the United States. By the administration, by the CIA? They trained these people. The CIA? Yes. Yes, it started back in the 1980s. Because you're mentioning a Florida outfit, this is different from the administration or the CIA. You're saying that the CIA? There are U.S. intelligence agencies, the CIA and others, other intelligence agencies. And they create a link between what happened in Florida, in Congress, in State Department, and all of this is fed into U.S. foreign policy. And uh, we had the subburst in uh, April. There were previous attempts. There were attacks like the ones we recently saw. We saw that the United States gathered their forces, and then in April, following the reform in the social security system, there were protesters, protesters who took to the streets. There were no deaths at the time. The following night, what we saw was that there were attacks carried out by these people. They attacked police stations town halls, government buildings, government buildings that were set fire to. And that's where it all started. I would like to mention what happened uh, with uh, the uh, human, uh, uh, well, the United Nations High Commission for Human Rights and the Commission had to leave. They said they had been expelled because a few days before, they had, well, the Bureau, the board had issued a very harsh report on what the administration had been doing since April. They referred to extrajudicial executions and uh, uh, forced uh, disappearances, uh, tortured sexual crimes, and they uh, mentioned that most of those deaths, most of the people had been murdered by the administration or by paramilitary forces. So I can imagine that the decision of expelling those people is related to this uh, report. The report and the content uh, were not to your taste. This was a very hard and harsh report. First, let me just say that the report was misinformed. Why? Didn't they carry out an investigation? Well, how can you carry out an in-depth report into a topic which is so complex in such a short amount of time? Clearly, it's politically charged. Politically charged? Yes. Politically charged, and at the helm, you've got the United States. The United States are trying to portray our government as being one which would attack its own people. Now, we're uh, referring to very serious crimes. Yes, but the report is serious as well. It wasn't carried out in a serious manner. Those people who drafted the report, we requested them to meet with specialized organizations who are specialized in Nicaragua as a country, and we tasked them with finding out the truth.
opponents say what they want to say, they make up things. And we can see that these reporters, the people who drafted the report, they took this information and they said that it was true. That this was not done in a serious manner, but they're doing this worldwide. It's a political enterprise. We only listen to one side. We only listen to the opponents. There are lists, lists of people who are meant to be dead, but are actually living in the United States. So it is a commonly held practice that is used to paint a government in a negative light with made-up information. We're talking about the United Nations. The High Commission issued a very harsh reports against Donald Trump's immigration policy, for example. So one cannot say that they're just pandering to the United States because at times they were very critical. So how can you say that we're talking about a political manipulation from the United States? I never met with the UN, or I never saw the UN or the Commission condemn the United States for their crimes. It's never been seen. The High Commission said that Donald Trump was racist, for example. Of course. But, that being said, I never saw them condemn the United States for crimes committed around the world. And here we're talking about crimes committed in the past, or even crimes that are still being committed around the world. It is political maneuvering that we're talking about here. And they met with the opposition. They claim certain things. And then we just trust their information without actually checking that information. So they just made it up uh, altogether. They're providing quite a number of details. It's slanderous. They're also referring to the role of those so-called tour bus, uh, this uh, uh, police. Uh, you said that they did not exist. Uh, you also mentioned that those were volunteers. Yes, they are volunteers. But uh, we got uh, footage of those people with arms, and uh, those are hooded people, and law uh, does not stipulate that uh, that uh, or those uh, volunteers can are actually doing what they're doing. This is an auxiliary police outfit, but they cannot... Uh, perpetrate what the reporters are saying or mentioning. You know, there was very serious crimes. The report is uh, referring to a coordinated action with the national police at the highest level. First and foremost, the volunteer police have not committed crimes. None? No. And the national police either? No, they were attacked. How can they murder people? They're just defending themselves. This is what the United Nations is saying and the human rights organization. But they weren't there. No investigation was carried out by the police? They weren't there. The eyewitnesses that I'm talking about are citizens of Nicaragua. They're the ones who were there. Here I'm talking about people who were held in custody for 90 days. So we needed to provide support to the police so they could remove blockades and that we could find a solution to the situation because there were crimes being committed in the country. So those uh, volunteers, the, this volunteer police, perpetrated no crime whatsoever? No, none. So there will be no more violence? No. How can you say that? Because uh, violence has prevailed for quite a number of months. Is that all over? 
Whatever the case may be, demonstrators must do so peacefully. Now, if you're saying that the situation is now going back to normal and you're saying that there's no dialogue, there was an attempt to talk and it broke apart with the Catholic Church as an intermediary, but you leveled accusations against them and said that they were actually working in concert with those people that attempted the coup. You talked about extending the talks perhaps with the United Nations the European Union. So very specific, specifically, I'd like to know whether you're now uh, uh, in talks with the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Gutierrez, so as to resume a genuine dialogue to put an end to this crisis. We spoke with the United Nations Secretary General. We met with the uh, so it was our Minister for Foreign Affairs who went and met with the United Nations representatives. They also went to the Vatican, where our Minister for Foreign Affairs met with the high representatives from the Vatican for foreign policy. Not with the Pope? No, with the Deputy Minister for Foreign Affairs from the Vatican. We have also met with representatives from governments from Europe, governments that have shown their support. In particular, I can think of the German government. We also met with the head of government from Spain, who also took a stance in favor of us. And what we can see here is that they are willing to help us to stop the United States interfering in Nicaraguan political life. Because what we can see is that the United States continue to interfere more and more in Nicaragua. In doing so, they are just increasing tension within the country. And this is actually stopping us from reaching a solution where we can help ourselves. So the conditions for talks are just not present. The Catholic Church is not playing this role as a mediator, and the United States will not take part in those talks. No, that's not the case, because the U.S. interfered. But you could st still say, well, okay, I know the role of the United States, be that as it may, we still need those talks to put an end to this crisis. I can't accept dialogue with the United States. But who is now talking with the United States? Well, they're the ones who lay down the rules. Along with the church? Yes. The Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is under the orders of the United States? At the Episcopal Conference, in a recent private meeting that we had with them, made a statement, and I actually have the document, and they listed a number of points in that document. What's interesting is that they are taking up the same arguments coming from the opposition and from the United States. But they should be neutral in the matter. Any mediator, no matter what the circumstance, should remain neutral. They shouldn't take on one side's argument or the other. What we can see here is we have a clear-cut ultimatum that has been put down to us for us to step down from government. I'd like to talk about early elections. You mentioned conditions, and a survey was just issued saying that 80 percent 
of uh, citizens in Nicaragua would wish early elections. You said no. You said that this was not a good idea. You will never accept this possibility, or you perhaps consider saying, well, for example, if something is necessary to bring peace back into the country, we could talk about it. To call early elections would be a drastic idea for Nicaragua. You could perhaps, for instance, say, I will not run again in 2021. Well, just to show, perhaps. Listen, we need to defend the institutions and respect in those institutions. It's a fundamental principle here, because if that were not to be the case, then any government after 2021, any government that is faced with contestation from population will topple. And that would mean that we would be back into the same form of society that we had when we were going through crisis. So whether I'm a candidate or not, you know, who knows? You know. Okay, we're talking here today. But who knows? Life comes and goes. Who knows what life holds in store for us? So, if I'm still alive in 2021, if the conditions are right for me to be a candidate, then I may as well be a candidate. But maybe the conditions are right for another camarade to be candidate. Well, then we'll see then, when the time is right. We'll have to evaluate the situation, weigh up the situation. You know, we can't put the cart before the horse. We can't think about 2021 straight away. In a conclusion, now in the first question, we were talking about dictatorship and corruption. Now, of course, uh, there are quite a number of question marks around the fact that you are president, your spouse is vice president, and uh, several of your children are playing an important role in uh, the press or in the oil sector. So people talk of dynasty, and it is said that Nicaragua is no democracy, but it belongs and is controlled by one single family. I can think of a number of dynasties. There are some that are still around today in Europe. There are dynasties in Europe. This form of system still exists. You have royal families, a family with a specific status that places them above regular citizens. The United States as well. You've got dynasties like the Bush and Kennedy families. The current president as well. The current president appointed a number of his own family and friends to positions of power in the United States. So here, let's talk about Camarade Rosario. She was known from a time back as a militant on the front. And she now, today, has positions of power because of her time as a militant and also because of the skills that she has. But, as always, she is victim of contempt that people have towards women, sexism, and that is a huge burden to carry. 
she has come under criticism for holding positions of power. But we aren't trying to create a dynasty here. My children don't have any positions within the government. There are some who do help out. And I have one child, for instance, who is having a foundation that teaches singing in impoverished neighborhoods. I have other children as well who are studying journalism, communications. They love communication. So those accusations of nepotism, unfounded, completely unfounded. Unfounded. Tell me, who of my children are employed by the government? Last question. You're talking about petrol and oil like we're an oil-producing country. Agreements have been uh, uh, signed with Venezuela. That's another matter, that relations between us and the Venezuelan government. Last question, because the clock is ticking. Donald Trump said a few weeks ago that it would be a good idea to engage in talks with him. And uh, we have been uh, talking about the United States quite extensively. Did you try to engage in talks with him? Are you still wishing to talk with him because he's uh, engaging in talks with one of his arch enemies, such as uh, the leader of North Korea or Putin? So why not Ortega? I think, I think that the idea of having exchange and dialogue with a global power like the United States, and here I'm not talking just on behalf of Nicaragua, I'm talking for Latin America as well. I think such dialogue is necessary. In fact, it's an imperative because it is through such dialogue that the Latin American voice can be heard by the United States. But unfortunately, such dialogue with the entire region just doesn't occur. In fact, countries between, within the region don't really see eye to eye on the matter. Have you tried to engage in talks with no. Trump? No, I said that I'm ready to discuss with Trump. The General Assembly of the United Nations could be a good uh, venue for that purpose. Yes, it's true. It could be an opportunity. Are you going to go there? I remember during the war in the 1980s, it was during a UN General Assembly. We were in the heart of the conflict at the time, and I remember that Reagan treated me back then like this lady in the United Nations Security Council is treating me today. We met at a United Nations event. We said hello, we shook hands, we spoke for a short while. I spoke about peace. I also spoke about the fact that we have a lot of long-standing, deep-seated disagreements between the United States and Nicaragua. I spoke about the fact that Nicaragua has been a long-standing victim of U.S. interference for such a long time as well, and that the United States is still insisting on interfering. But that being said, that doesn't mean that the United States can't one day hold respect for Nicaragua and Latin America. So you could actually go to New York and uh, try to meet him. Yes, I would like to. Thank you very much. Mr. President uh, Ortega for this interview, thank you very much. Here from Managua in Nicaragua.
welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. As you can tell, that was an interesting interview. That was an interesting interview with Mr. Uh, Daniel Tango. And we want to have a little dialogue in terms of what did you, what did you get from that interview? Uh, what lesson can we draw from as we discuss the theme tonight, what's going on, past, present, and future? We've actually had panelists listen to this interview for Otago. Uh, what are some of the things we can take from this? What can we draw from this? This seems like a combination we had all three into one. Brother Hockey, listen to that particular interview. What are some of the things that you can draw from it and learn from it, particularly as it relates to the behavior and the history of the U.S. and their foreign policy? Brother Hockey. <laughs> Uh, a couple of things I could draw from that from this from this from that uh from that uh, uh piece. Uh one is the hypocrisy as as related to US foreign policy. And secondly the rule of propaganda. Uh one of the things I find very, very interesting when the when the narrator started talking when the moderator started talking about uh the uh, uh the the involvement of Nikki Haley in terms of, you know, uh demonizing Nicaragua I just I knew the propaganda was on his way because one of the things about Nikki Nikki Hill is important to understand that as an individual who was born as a Sikh and given the, the tenets of Sikhism, uh one of the things that uphold is the unity of all human beings. And so in fact one of the uh one of the tenants talks about selfless service and actually and talking about being a benefit of to society to society, uh by creating conditions to ensure that human beings, all human beings are respected and treated fairly. Uh, so for her to actually demonize uh, uh, Nicaragua and make it look like something in some some kind of terrorist outfit, speak violence in terms of the kind of hypocrisy uh, that is so much part of American American foreign policy. Uh, one of the things, you know, Brother Africa, uh, when I when I talk about the um, the, the, the propaganda um, and propaganda aspect, uh, one of the things is that in particular when we talk about Nikki Haley, one of the things that uh, that stands out. Is that when she was an ambassador to the UN, uh, the things that she stood for uh, were not only um, unjust, but they're fundamentally uh, in, in, in opposition to the human development. And I'm talking specifically about her decision to push for the the, the end of the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, of course, global warming is a big issue, and that was very, very interesting. Also, this in terms of the deal they had with the Iran nuclear uh, deal, in terms of ensuring to, to limit nuclear proliferation, which is good for humanity generally. Uh, and for her to embrace to embrace these things speaks volumes in terms of the kind of uh, hypocrisy that was very much part of her, you know, her persona in terms, you know, as, as a public official of the United States. And so, therefore, when she talks about Nicaragua in terms of, you know, anything Nicaragua doing that's maybe um, uh, counterproductive to, 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 to humanity or counterproductive to the people there in Nicaragua, I can only laugh. But more importantly, Brother Africa, and I, I conclude with this, I think one of the things is that, um, and I take personal sense, but when you start talking about in terms of, you know, um, Nicaragua engaging in, in shady practices, the first thing that popped into my mind is the whole question around Iran-Contra. I mean, and I'm, I'm late with this because, simply because this was a point in time in, in, in the United States history, well, specifically the U.S. history, in which they literally flooded the African community with drugs. Now here it is a situation where the people are most vulnerable. Where you where you where you create lack or you create a situation where there's no opportunity for the people. You create a situation where people don't have access to jobs. The jobs shouldn't make meaningful wages. The people have the poorest education, and you 
that you didn't turn around and have the to import drugs into that community for the sole purpose of making sure, you know, you can fund Iran who can then send weaponry, you know, uh, weaponry uh, to Iran. And I, I mean, weaponry, you know, to Nicaragua. Nicaragua in turn take drugs, at least the Contras, take drugs by Nicaragua and send them to the United States who in turn use the African community in America for the sole purpose of developing, you know, getting funds from the drug trade and then the process goes, goes on and on and on. So clearly, you know, this notion in terms of being empathetic or concerned about, uh, you know, injustice afflicted upon the Nicaraguan people was so transparent. I mean, clearly this, this notion that America ever give a damn about anybody who doesn't have large sums of money and who's not white, I think is laughable. But the mere fact that, uh, the, the mere fact that this, this, this moderator attempted, you know, to, to, to paint Nicaragua with a naked light, uh, President Ortega handled it very, very skillfully. Uh, he laid out the contradictions, he laid out the ironies, and he laid out in terms of U.S. complicity, in terms of all the wrongs that not only inflicted upon its own people, but harms inflicted upon people throughout the world. So then you take a laid out there in terms of just how inhumane, just how corrupt, just how dangerous America is, not only to, to the citizens in America, but, citizens, but people throughout the world. So I thought it was a very, very interesting interview, and I support uh, President Ortega in terms of, you know, his steadfastness in terms of being able to withstand this onslaught in terms of propaganda because clearly this guy attempted to the best of his ability to form in as much propaganda as possible could. And I think in this regard, he failed because Daniel Taylor was on top of his history. He knew how op- the United States operates. Uh, he was skilled in terms of the kind of thing the United States does. Uh, he was well-versed in terms of the history of the United States, so therefore he couldn't be deceived. So that's my view on, on that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. We now will go to Brother Moses. Brother Rose, what's your analysis and take from this interview that the people can learn from as it relates to some of the issues Daniel Tegel stated? Well, brother, uh, first of all, let me say that, you know, the Nicaraguan Revolution is very dear to my heart. Um, um, I was in a collective um, struggling to learn Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, and we were running a food store in, in D.C., a nonprofit food store, um, uh, struggling with food for people, not for profit. We were there in 18th and F Street, Northwest in Washington, D.C., but uh, it's called Stone Soup. And on our collective, we had a, we had a, um, Enoch and Feliz, and they were from uh, the southern um, Nicaragua and area, Nicaragua, and Enoch eventually died fighting for the revolution in, in Nicaragua. And so, but anyway, um, so that struggle is very dear to my heart, and uh, I, I'm I, I don't, I'm not as up on the internal contradictions within Nicaragua. I know there's a lot of issues within Nicaragua, and the U.S. government surrounding them and putting on these oppressive conditions uh, and repressive conditions, and so it's quite it's quite a feat that that Daniel Ortega is still still alive and and still struggling uh, with his people uh, and for his people. And um, I know even that's contradictory, though, in this day and age. But nevertheless, um, certainly from here in the U.S. of A., we have to support the struggles of the Nicaraguan people for independence. Countries want their independence. Nations want liberation. And the people want revolution. Thank you. Thank you. Brother Moses, for your response, and to our listening audience, we thought we would play that clipping because it's awful 
a reflection of our theme tonight, what's going on, past, present, and future. Uh, if you listen to the nature of the questions and the dialogue, and having any inkling of the history of the U.S., particularly our foreign policy, you hear, hear the hypocrisy. Not only this kind of hypocrisy is going on today against Venezuela, but against any country, all countries, who refuse to bow down uh, to U.S. interests. So at this point in time, we will continue the discussion on what's going on in that world and the, and the community when we come back with a dialogue with Brother Neil Holmes. Brother Neil Holmes is a political activist and organizer, and he's going to share with us what's going on in his world and the community when we come back. We're going to take a station break, and you are listening to Africa on the Move. Chains, living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know. I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. Must prepare and learn how to care for soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino is the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights 
pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin, turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. My journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. If you Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. We will continue our discussion on the segment, What's Going On in Your World and the Community. What we're going to do right now, we have a special guest. We have with us Brother Neil Holmes, who is a uh, professor, an organizer. He's a person who has a concern for his community. You know, in our community, we have different people doing many things, but ultimately, they are participating towards trying to help alleviate the suffering of our people. He is one of those brothers, so we have come today to allow him to share his perspective on what's going on in his world community. And at this point in time, we would like to welcome Brother Neil home to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Neil. Uh, yeah, thank you very much uh, for, for having me on uh, tonight. Well, Brother Neil, you know, one of the things we would like to briefly do, maybe give you the opportunity to briefly introduce yourself to our listening audience, and then we basically would like for you to share with us in terms of what's going on in your world and the community from your perspective. Okay. Well, um, uh, just to introduce myself, I'm uh, I'm a member of the uh, PRSP, the uh, Pan-African Revolutionary Socialist Party. Um I've been a Pan-Africanist, an Nkrumah's Pan-Africanist, uh, probably for what, about since 1974 at least. And I was always, you know, I shouldn't say always, but I've been in, involved in some type of Pan-Africanism uh, uh, since, you know, since about maybe 1972. 
or so. Um, and so that's that's basically the organizational background or basis for for what the little stuff that I'm doing. Uh, in in terms of our organization, um, basically we are Pan Africanists, and by Pan Africanism we mean the total uh, liberation and unification of Africa under under scientific socialism. And by scientific socialism, we mean the socialism that comes about through class struggle, but also the socialism that comes about through understanding the particularities of 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 of, of one's own circumstances, because uh, everybody doesn't have the uh, same historical circumstances. So there are going to be differences from place to place in terms of how how people pursue uh, the revolutionary path, you know, or, or, or there's different things that we have to to do. And so when when we say we are Africans, um, one of the things we are saying is that, uh, you know, in, in in some ways, you know, uh, Africa is is born. I mean, African Pan Africanism really is kind of born out of out of out of slavery in many ways because when we came to these plantations, starting in Virginia. We came here, some of us were Yoruba, some of us were Igbo, some of us were Hausa, some of us were crew, and some of us were, you know, all different kinds of things, Fonte, you know, we were all different different things. And when we were on the continent, some of us were fighting each other because we saw ourselves, we had these two types of division. We one type of division, we saw ourselves as, as separate groups, ethnic groups we we might or some people refer to them as, as tribes or whatever we might look pretty much the same and 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 so forth but we we didn't see ourselves as one people and what that meant is that sometimes in unscrupulous people could organize a group to fight another group because it might mean some benefits for them so that's one division and over time that we had another kind of division. That's a vertical division. I'm sorry. Every, every, we had these straight up and down lines, and so we see each other as different people. We had another division, uh, which is a uh, which is a horizontal line, a line coming across, which is a class line. So we had other divisions that had grown in our community over time. They didn't always exist, but they began to grow where one group would get power and wealth over everybody else. And so what happened when we when we got on these plantations doing tobacco and cotton and different other things, sugar and and so forth, uh many of us were thrown together in the same situation. And so we we stopped referring to ourselves as this group and that group and we began to refer to ourselves as African. And so and, and you saw some similar things happen on the continent. Some of the people who had been enslaved in, in Africa uh, had began to refer to themselves as African as opposed to this ethnic group and that ethnic group. So all around the world, the enslaved of the African people began to see that 
these divisions that we had between ourselves were unnecessary divisions. And we also began to see that this system, this slave system, or actually a slave capitalist system, because there was a real overlap between the, the, the slavery that we uh, experienced and the capitalism that was growing out of that slavery. So in some ways it was like kind of like this overlap between this capitalism that's being born and the slavery that's, that's making it possibly born because it's providing so much wealth because um, you didn't have to give nobody nothing but a little uh, cornbread and, 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 and molasses every now and then and, and put people out to work all day. And so so you could accumulate uh, lots and lots of money from this slavery. And in some parts, like in Haiti, you know, you know, you might not live longer than seven years because it was cheaper to work somebody to death and keep importing new people than to provide them with any kind of um, uh, reasonable uh, standard of living while they were being enslaved. So this this slavery that we experienced in, in some ways, some aspects of it is still with us, that slavery created the wealth and and some of the institutions that's gonna that created the biggest uh and most powerful and most unjust system, the system of, of capitalism that we have to confront right now. And the question is how do we how do we confront this capitalism? What do we do to um get it to to de- destroy it, basically. So our party um, believes that central to dealing with capitalism as a whole is one of the most important things is the development of a socialist Africa, unified socialist Africa, which by unified, we're talking about an Africa that instead of having 54 separate little countries, and some of them are kind of big, but separate countries, you have one strong uh, country that can now speak for African people or protect African people, not only on the continent, but also around the world. And it changes the power dynamic everywhere in the world. And even, and it, and it makes, it increases the revolutionary potential everywhere else in the world, including Europe and the United States and, and, and so forth. And I'll just give you a, just a, a small example of that. During the um, period of the 60s, late 60s, or really the 70s, on the continent where you had the different uh, places that had been colonized by the, um, by the Portuguese, uh, those people uh, began to organize. Our brothers and sisters in those places, Mozambique, Angola, Guinea-Bissau, they began to organize, and they began to struggle at such a high level that 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 even the Portuguese themselves became revolutionized by the experience of that of that uh, struggle. Um, uh, so as as uh, there was a, a gentleman by the name of brother by the by the by the name of um, 
uh, uh, oh God, I'm getting old, man. Uh, 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 he wrote he wrote a, a, a pamphlet once, and he said, "Small nations push large nations out into revolution." Um, and I, his name will come to me later on. And what he meant was that these these revolutions that happen often happen not at the center of the empires and so forth, but often out at the at the outskirts of the revol- of those empires. And so we we look at the Russian Revolution. It didn't it didn't happen in the most uh, highly developed capitalist countries. It happened in in the cap in one of the least developed capitalist countries, one that was just developing. And uh, and when China developed, China's revolution occurred. China, of course, had a long history, but when it had its revolution, it was, uh, you know, in 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 very bad shape, and it began to develop and it changed the power dynamic around the world. So um, then Vietnam, you know, Vietnam came. It was uh, one of the uh, smaller uh, places. Uh, Cuba, again, these these places on the outskirts. Of the uh, of of the core of the uh, of the main capitalist centers, they help by their example and by the and by the fact that they are changing the uh, level of contradiction. They make the they send those contradictions back home or back to the empire. Um, so you know, so you have a situation where you have this colonial situation where in the co- colonial situation, these countries set up colonies. One of the reasons they set up colonies to take their problems and put their problems someplace else. So you had in, in England one time you had these, uh, you were having these uh, uh, people were having bread riots because they didn't have enough to eat. And you had this guy Cecil Rhodes walking around seeing the bread riots. And he said, wow, if we don't do something about this, you know, England is going to be torn up. And so one of his ideas was send as many of these people as you could to South Africa. Now, when they get to South Africa, they could live great because now they're living on top of these, the Africans who are going into the mines. And in these mines, they make the Africans in the mines of South Africa make in a week less than a miner is going to make in the mines in England in an hour. And so that level of wealth that you're taking out of those colonies, you can spread it around a little bit. And because you spread it around, then everybody, uh, you know, then, then everybody can eat a little bit and everybody begins, or, or you know, especially the Europeans, begin to see themselves as uh, part of this uh, part of this capitalist system, and they begin to identify with the capitalist system, and we ourselves begin to identify with this capitalist system uh, because we get the leftover um, stuff from it. But when you when when you begin to take away those areas where there's this accumulation process is constantly ongoing, then that forces these contradictions into the center of the of the empire itself. And we're seeing, like right now, in the U.S., we've seen these contradictions uh, at a at a pretty high level. They haven't gotten to the highest level, but they are at a pretty pretty high level. So, um, so right now, you know, you're seeing, especially among our people, uh, among our people, we're being we're losing housing, 
we're we living in the streets, families living in the streets. It's been occurring for some time, but the pandemic, and it's not, it's not really the pandemic as much as, it's, as this, these capitalists are using the pandemic to even intensify the amount of money that they have, the amount of wealth that they're stealing. So in the, at the height of this pandemic, people are losing housing left and right, and it's even difficult to even uh, say, hey, we, we can't, you know, you, you want to say people, people have to live, people have to survive, they can't have a job because the jobs are shut down, but, and they can't pay their rent, but you're, but you're going to say forget them because we have to respect property rights. And, and things like that. So, so, so this are the, these sorts of things. So, at, at this particular um, point, um, uh, just in terms of our organization, we we are looking at several different aspects of this thing. The first aspect of of the work that that we try to do is, uh, we, again, we try to follow Nkuma's work, and, and Kuma made errors. In some of his early stuff, and then he uh, he corrected some of these errors, like in his book Class Struggle in Africa, where he 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 became a little bit more focused on in terms of some of the things that he said earlier. But one of the things that that he stayed on was that you have to have this uh, unified, liberated socialist Africa in order to to protect our people both at home, when I say at home in Africa, and abroad. When, I'm, when I say abroad, I'm talking about the United States and the islands and South America and Europe and, and, and et cetera. And so, so our first level of work is in, in that sense. And one of the things that we do, we, we, took, we, took, we look at this uh, in this book, uh, Revolutionary Warfare, and Kuma calls for a couple of things. One of the things that he called for is the organization of an AACPC, an all-African um, political coordinating committee. And and this is one of the things that we have made a call for. There was a Pan-African conference, an Nkuma, uh, Nkuma's uh, conference in uh, Accra, I think, one or two years ago. Yeah, about two years ago now. And we presented a paper there. We weren't there, but we developed a paper, and we we actually it was a joint paper along with the uh, AAPRP uh, International uh, Branch in in, in the crowd there. And uh, we we um, at that particular paper we called for we we, we called for the AACPC, and then we put out our calendar that following year, and the calendar really had different organizations in it who had some sense of that that idea and so we're engaged in, in discussions with different organizations and trying to attract different organizations because we're just a tiny little bitty group and we don't uh, control any of Nkuma's ideas all we can do is put them out there and we think that if, if our if our organizations, our Pan-Africanist organizations can come together, um, then that's that's going to be key. The other thing we want to do is promote Nkuma's 
ideas amongst those people who are revolutionary, but they had different ideas set of ideas. So, for instance, we see that in, in Southern Africa, you have a lot of people who are uh, engaged in armed struggle, who um, were anti-capitalists and, and, and so forth, um, but who did not necessarily adopt the Pan-Africanist idea and and who themselves were either uh, tied to the Soviet Union um, or to China, and 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 they uh, made a mistake of confusing their revolutions with with Cuba's, I mean, with China's revolution or or with uh, with uh, Russia's revolution. And when and when the Soviet Union fell apart, or, or you know, stopped, you know, embraced capitalism wholeheartedly. Uh, they didn't know what to do. So so there are some folks in that tendency who are looking back, and some of them are now rereading Nkrumah and, and, and coming to the understanding that, you know, you really, for our people, you really have to, to, to do this kind of thing. So that's one of the key things that we are, we are doing, uh, uh, you know, uh, internationally trying to put this out there to people, and we have a podcast that it, that comes out of uh, Milwaukee uh, monthly. That that uh, you know where we have different people um, from the Pan African world who discuss um, their pers- perspective on different topics relating to to what we're doing, similar to to what you're doing with your show, um, Brother Lee. So that's one of the things that 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 we do. Um, the other thing is that kind of uh more locally um what we are doing to uh, take this idea forward this idea of of uh of of unification of Africa and all that forward in a practical way is we've begun a pro- a project in conjunction with the uh with the uh friends of the Congo where we are trying to raise money to build uh, some uh, radio stations and some uh, what are called learning centers in a rural area in the Congo. It's a pretty large area. There's a progressive organization working in that area. We're trying to help them do that, and they are, are self-reliant. Uh, folks, they can they can run these radio stations using uh, things like palm oil that they can get right out of the right out of the area where they live. You know, right out of the trees, they can get the energy to run run these uh, radio stations and things. So, <clears throat> one of the one of the ask one of the um, contradictions <clears throat> in some ways in some ways about the the Pan-Africanist movement, at least I believe, I might be wrong, but early on is that many instances it was um, mostly in the urban areas in the cities, and the cities are important. I'm not trying to say the cities are not important, but in the cities becoming more and more important because our people are moving to the cities, but still 
large numbers, probably majority of our people live in, on, on the continent in the countryside. So the countryside is is uh, is important place to to try to get some things done. So we want to promote some Pan-African ideas, some ideas in certain places where people don't even know about the history of people like Lumumba right in the country where he was born and fought and struggled and so forth. So these are some of the things we want to try to uh, make happen or to assist in, in making happen. That's that's at, 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 at that particular level. And also we're trying to connect with some of these forces on the continent, some that we know, some that we work with in the past, uh, some that we don't necessarily know that we're trying to meet and trying to work with in, in coordinating our our work. Uh, one of the things, now, in addition, um, you know, one of the things that Nkuma said once, somebody uh, wrote him a letter from the states and said, well, what what can you do? In the, in, in the states, if you're a Pan-Africanist, and Kuma said, you know, there are about four or so things that he mentioned. One of the things he mentioned was that you have to fight to improve the conditions of your people uh, where they are. You have to do constant study and raise the consciousness of the people. You have to uh, embarrass what he calls embarrass the United States and you embarrass the United States by engaging in the kind of struggle that, that's been going on here uh, around this question of police brutality and, and those sorts of things. And he said, if you have the capacity, um, you can uh, participate in the African revolution up to and including the armed struggle. If you have so skilled or so, um, you know of that inclination. So these are all aspects of what of what he's uh, he's saying of he, what he said. Okay. So one of the things that uh, we want to do, or that we do, to a very low level. I'm not trying to say we do it at any big level. Is participate in some of these things that are occurring that are affecting our people. So some of our f- folks have participated in struggles around housing issues and in demonstrations and so forth around this question of housing. This is a key question here in Richmond and all around this, this uh, country. Uh, some of us have participated in issues facing uh, 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 prison, people that are incarcerated, people who are formerly incarcerated, in terms of some of their rights and also in terms of the conditions that's that's inside uh, the um, different uh, prisons and so forth. And and we've also looked at uh, working, trying to work around uh, some of these situations in the schools um, in terms of how the kind of information that our children get um, and, 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 and so forth. Now, when we do these Brother things, Bill, we're not. Uh huh. Yeah, we got about two minutes. If you can make that point. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. To share, oh, I'm share sorry. with our listening audience how to get in touch with you, people who may be interested. It's important to work with your organization. Okay. Um, yeah. If 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 they're interested um, in in getting in touch with us, 
you know, we actually got a brand new website, uh, and the website has changed. So if if they're interested, they can actually give me a call on my phone and leave a message say I'm interested. My number is area code three zero two five eight eight one 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 six. That's area code three zero two five eight eight one 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 six, and I'll get them the website. We have a brand new website. The old website uh, doesn't work, and I just found out about the new website the other day. So um, so we have a, a brand new website. But if you're in, in uh, anywhere, just give me a call, and we'll um, contact you. And, 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 and there's other things. One thing I want to mention is one of the things we try to do is work in our rural areas. You know, one, you know, when I say this, we do it at a very low level. But 25% of all the Africans in this country live in the rural areas. About 30% in Virginia live in the rural areas. And we don't deal with the rural um, um, so much. So these are some of the things we do. The other thing we do, we have a monthly program uh, which comes on, uh, and uh, it's a radio show, comes on once a month. Um, and, again, if you, you call me at that number, 302-588-1116, or text me at that number, and I'll text you the information. I'll text you the the uh, the uh, the uh the number for the uh, uh, or the website address and the number for the radio show. It's a kind of call-in radio show. But those are key things. But if people are interested in any of that stuff that we're talking about, uh, uh, let me know. Just give me a call, and, and I'll get right back with you. But just leave a message because sometimes, uh, I'm, a lot of times I'm in my car and, uh, and I, I can't answer the phone, so just leave a message and I'll get right back with you. Tell you, say I heard you on Brother Lee's show. I want to hear get some more information, and uh, I'll you. get right back with you. Hi, Brother Neil. We'd like to thank you for sharing with our listening audience the work that you're doing in our community, and they have your contact number. We encourage all people to do something to try to help to alleviate the suffering of our people. And we'd like to thank you for your effort, and uh, we'll continue to move forward, Alvin and Baffles and Alvin. Brother, we thank you again for your contribution to our people. We thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much, Brother Lee. And um, I'm trying to do my little bit. It's a small drop in the bucket, but um, it's just a small, very small drop in the bucket, but I'm trying. And thank you for your work for so many years here. All right, you have been listening to Brother Neil Holmes. At this point in time, we're going to take a quick revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about our theme tonight, what's going on, past, present, and future. You are listening to Africa on the Move. Welcome to Pilgrim And to the Buffalo Who once ruled a plane Like the vultures Circling beneath the dark clouds Looking for the rain Looking for the rain Just like the city that Stagger on the coastline In a nation That just can't stand much more Like the 
forest Buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter Winter in America Pan-Africanist. It challenges the age-old 
and traditional interpretations of the president of the preeminence of African American leaders and educator Booker T. Washington in Africa is evidence of this direct role and influence in Africa, which is astonishing and unparalleled by its con- contemporaries. So that's a book that is out maybe wanting people to take another look at who was Mother T. Washington. And I ask my panelists and those who may read the article to weigh in on it in terms of um, how they view this particular um, possibility. We know that not to stay the thing, everything changes. And based upon additional new information, it will have impact on how we interpret and perceive things. In this particular article, in reference to the book, it's talk about Booker T. Washington's role that he played in terms of being a supporter of Africa in the area of the Congo Free State, dealing with the Liberia crisis, as well as the African inclusion measures, which was a measure that was created back in the U.S. around the early 1900s. Around 1915, they had an immigration bill where they wanted to make sure Africans could not come into the United States, similar to the same thing that's going on now. And he fought against that. Um, you know, this crisis dealing with um, Liberia and its uh, possibility of being colonized by the French and the British, etc. He waged, you know, a war against that aspect, as well as, you know, he was a supporter and tried to um, do what he can to help our brothers and sisters in the Congo. So I would like to get my panelists critiques on that particular narrative. You are welcome to join us as well. I call in 323-679-0841. Please hit one, and we'll nod your last four numbers. So, Brother Haki, I will start with you first. You'll take on that particular article on Booker T. Washington, Africa, the making of a Pan-Africanist. Well, Brother Africa, I think it was high time um, Booker T. Washington got to do, because often uh, he's presented as being unidimensional in terms of his ideas. Often we think about Booker T. Washington, we talk about his uh, his, his position that uh, we should learn a skill to become self, self-employed self so we can become self-empowered. And that's all we hear about Booker T. Washington. We didn't know the man was a vast thinker, and we didn't know that he. when we talk about situations like what's happening in the Congo or the Libya in terms of the colonial struggles, uh, that he was very much aware of what was going on and very much supported those movements and lend his hand to support those kind of movements. And so those are the kind of things that's important to understand. Because once we understand Booker T. Washington and in, 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 in all his uh, magnificence, uh, we can begin, then we can begin to understand, you know, just how complex a lot of these historical uh, historical leaders were in terms of their understanding in terms of events that shaped the world. And so, therefore, it's important when we talk to our children that they understand that when we talk about historical figures and we talk about the historical heroes, that we understand that we, we, we present them in a more nuanced, more complex kind of way in terms of their understanding, because one of the things that we don't want to do is for notice the notion that somehow our ability to think is unidimensional, and that we only can think on one level, it would, we're incapable of thinking on, on, on multi-levels at the same time. So um, I think Booker T. Washington is an epitome in terms of being able to think on an extract level and to understand the implicit threat to African people, not just in America, but throughout the world, and to understand the necessity in terms of being involved in points of organization in terms of combating these ills. So um, this article is high, is high, is high, is about time. Okay, next we go to our brother Anthony. We'd like to get his take. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. You know, take on that 
article in the narrative of Booker T. Washington. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa, and uh, a revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fe- my fellow panelists, and uh, the listening audience. Um, I think that this might change uh, people's uh, perception of Booker T. Washington, because, uh, you know, the way uh, 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 popular history portrays it, he uh, he's portrayed as an accommodationist, and really there there's a whole other aspect to him, and uh, and I think uh, you know and I think there was more uh, to uh, and uh, there's a possibility uh, that Marcus Garvey might have been more uh, been more aware of his. Uh, you know of uh, Booker T. Brother Booker T. Washington's politics than uh, than 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 is commonly believed, and uh, because we're commonly taught that Booker that uh, Marcus Garvey came to uh, to meet with Booker T. Washington to learn how he about how he's running the, the Tuskegee Institute in terms of that he thought that would be very helpful to the UNIA. But I think that this article and the, and the book it's about changes uh, people's perception of who Booker T. Washington was and that he, and that he kept a lot of his work, uh, you know, uh, you know, concerning Africa in the background or quiet because of, uh, you know, uh, you know, he was trying to, to, to raise funds to support uh, the Tuskegee in- uh, Institute, not Tuskegee University at that time. But uh, I found this uh, very interesting that he was uh, not just concerned about what was going on in the U.S., in that part of the African diaspora, but he was concerned about what was going on at home as well. And so I think this uh, puts a different perspective, gives a different perspective on Booker T. Washington and the fact that he had more in common with the other, with uh, the contemporary uh, Pan-Africanists of his era like Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois than, uh, than we understand presently. Okay, let's go to Brother Moses. Your take. Yeah, um, this, this is a, um, a rejuvenation, a revitalization, a revival of uh, the, the legacy of Booker T. Washington, certainly, uh, I remember, you know, the confrontation between him and du- Dubois, W.E.B. Dubois and stuff, uh, and certainly he was, I saw him as an accommodationist, but this is new light on, on the situation, and uh, it's certainly a welcome light at that, um, and, um, yeah, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's refreshing to know that, uh, that you know we are complex human beings, and that we're not just 
just one issue people, but but we are able to get into the struggles of the people and 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 be on the right side of the issue. Thank you. Okay, panelists. You know, in terms of looking at the role that he played and how he did it, are there any lessons that y'all would like to maybe articulate to those who live in the U.S. and elsewhere who may have access to capital? And how they could um, view Booker T. Washington in terms of saying that you could be, you could do more than one thing one time in terms of um, understanding that you know you should always always have a connection to your home, mother home, mother Africa. Well, Hackey, what we said to some of the wealthy African elites here in terms of what lessons they can learn from Booker T. Well, I think he understood that his self-interests are tied up. And tied up in the uh, a strong and unified uh, unified people, he understands the nature the nature of imperialism. He understands that a weak and disorganized people are vulnerable to manipulation and exploitation. And so, in that context, he understands the interest to make sure the African people, irrespective of where they are on the globe, understood that one people fighting one fight. So that was important. I think also one of the things, and this is something that Brother Moses raised earlier, the whole nexus between you know uh, political consciousness. And, and, and spiritual consciousness. Uh, of course, in the context of political struggle, a lot of times people don't talk about uh, spirituality talk because spirituality sees something as something that's um, essentially uh, a kind of spookism and something that really has no real legitimacy in the sense that you can't put your hand on it. It's not tangible. But the bottom line is that in terms of, in terms of ideas, just in the terms of being able to stand on the ideas, it's the spirituality a lot of times that uh, fortify that, that that makes it possible in terms of taking a stand, uh, particularly when it comes to politics, on situations that you know conceivably could get you in a lot of trouble. It's that belief in something greater than human beings themselves that actually empowers people uh, to take a stand, even though in, in the political world people may not acknowledge that. But the bottom line is that when you start thinking about people who dare fight a system, a particular system as powerful as America, who stand up and fight against the system despite its power, uh, just obviously, it's not the politics per se that motivates them, but it's got to be the spiritual element or dimension, you know, in terms of the way they think, or certainly their exposure, certainly the way uh, they, 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 see the, they see the universe. Uh, so clearly, uh, Booker T. Washington had the spiritual element with him, and so therefore, it empowered him in a time of tremendous uh, exploitation, of tremendous oppression. Despite all of that, when I'm, specifically, I'm talking about the potential in terms of being, being, being killed simply because of ideas that Booker T. Washington chose to put forth ideas, even though he knew in his heart of hearts that putting forth his ideas eventually could lead to his demise. But despite that, he persists. So it speaks volumes in terms of his spiritual development. So I think that this, for, 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 these, for these upper middle income Africans, you know, who's who are afraid, you know, because if they speak out, they're going to lose their, lose their money. Uh, if, if they, they, take a, they have to understand that at some point, if you don't take a stand with the powerful, you're going to lose that wealth anyway. And because for those people the wealth is so such a, 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 a powerful, it's just a, a, a powerful uh, uh, tool of their, of, of their existence, at least in their mind, they think, because they put so much emphasis on wealth, then if it's really that important to them, then one of them is they got to do, and they got to understand if they're going to keep it, then it's to their advantage to make sure that people, uh, particularly those people who are impoverished in the community, whether they be African and or poor people, is, and it, it behooves them to implement or to struggle for policies which seeks to empower, truly empower people because in the long term it's the only way they can maintain the kind of wealth that they put so much emphasis on in the first place. And I'll close with that. 
You know, Brother Anthony, one of the things came to mind when I read this article was that one of the things about Booker T is that it sort of showed, demonstrated that he'd never forgotten who he was. He realized, he, you know, not only did he have a connection to Africa, but I think it seems to view that, seemed that he took a view that he was the African himself. Your response to that? I think I, I think that I, I think I think that I think that I think that's true. I think he I think he realized. Uh, what, what we know what we know he was on, uh, only one generation removed from uh, from chattel slavery, and I think uh, and, and and I think Africans in that time period were a lot were a lot less confused about identity than than than, than we are today. And, uh, you know, and uh, I think, you know, he realized that he, that, 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 that ordinarily his, uh, his fate and those of his descendants were bound with the fate of the people as a whole. And I think that's why he worked, even though, even though he kept it quiet, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to to uh, to work in organizations like uh, you know Friends of the Congo, and also um, you know try to help out uh, 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 the brothers and sisters in Liberia that were struggling against being colonized by uh, by, by 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 the French, British, and German uh, uh, capitalists. So um, you know, so I think uh, I think this is a very revealing article, and and uh, you know, and I think I think the biggest lesson to draw from this is that there's more than one way to engage in uh, in political and uh, economic struggle. And uh, you know, and uh, and the thing about it though, and even no matter how uh, you know how much wealth you have, it'll all ultimately be lost eventually. So you might as well do do, uh, uh, do what you can, you know, to serve uh, the masses of the people. You know, panelists, uh, let's make our transition to the second article that we chose for tonight. And we'd like to alert the listening audience when you get a chance, if you have them, please um, go to the social media and Google up this article titled, After 50 Years of Failure, Why Does Social Promotion Still Have Merit in Baltimore City Public Schools? It's a very interesting article because one of the things that's reflected at the end of the night, what's going on, past, present, and future, I think this article really represents aspects of all three of those areas of time, the past, the present, and possibly the future. In terms of, if you look at and study the enemy propaganda, um, for many excuses they will find in terms of why this system has failed the people, it will continue to tell its lies over and over and over again to make you seem like you are really the victim, that you're not the victim, that, you know, whatever happened to you because of some things you didn't do or couldn't do. Now, the essence of this article, from what I can summarize from, is that 
They talk about the value and importance of mastering, mastering the English language and speaking and writing the English language. And failure to do that is a um, serious consequence in terms of not allowing you to be have access to wealth, access to mobility, and access to be a part of the society. Uh, when you all read this concept on social promotion, and for some reason or another, it highlighted and look at Baltimore, the city of Baltimore, which really is not a reflection of Baltimore, but seems to me it's a reflection of this whole damn country or the contradiction that they may be raising. So, Brother Haki, um, what you took on this article? Give me your take. Yeah, well, first let's define social promotionally. Uh, social promotion is defined as the advances and matriculation of students based on three loosely defined criteria. One, behavior. Two, attendance and engagement. In other words, as long as the, the kid comes to school, has good behavior, uh, doesn't disrupt the class, uh, uh, doesn't do perform outrageous kinds of disparate problems, uh, then as far as they're concerned, that in the year, irrespective of what, what kind of grades that student gets, that student's automatically passed. And, of course, the, 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 one of the problems that, you know, let's be very, very honest, when we talk about social promotion, essentially what we're talking about, people acquiescing or people participating in the system because the bottom line is that they get paid. And so, therefore, they could care less of what these students learn because they get paid. And so, therefore, they have a vested interest in promoting social promotion because it ensures that the money supply doesn't get cut, cut off. So clearly, Brother Africa, uh, social promotion, you know, uh, you know um, in this article, they're, they're simply equating social promotion, speaking English uh, 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 horribly. Uh, and the bottom line is that, you know, speaking English well doesn't translate all the time. Most of the time it doesn't translate into, you know, high, high earnings in terms of income. So let's, let's, discard, let's, let's discard that nonsense right away. But I will say in terms of the ability to articulate languages is important. Of course, I do understand that one of the one of the prejudices, one of the biases that I had to do with personally as a young man growing up, was that I didn't want to do anything affiliated with white people. And my perception was, and based upon my experiences, based upon my understanding of the world, that speaking English properly was to emulate white people. And I didn't want to be like white people, so therefore I'm going to reject any notion in terms of speaking speaking English properly. And that was an error on my part. But I didn't know at the time I was a young man, so I didn't know. I just assumed that you know, everybody thought that way. And so as a co- and one thing I think it's important we understand is that speaking English properly doesn't make you acting white. Uh, you know, all it means is that you master the, you know, uh, the, the ins and outs of language in terms of being able to express uh, language in a way in which, you know, is, is multi-layered and which people can get essentially the point that you're conveying. And that's all that is. So whether we're talking about proper English or we're talking about slang, if you're going to speak it, you speak it well. The thing I love about my African brothers and sisters on the continent is that they speak many languages, and they speak them all well. And I told, I stated once before in this program where I, I, a friend of mine, her daughter was, um, um, she was, uh, she was uh, three at the time, and uh, she introduced me to her daughter. And, um, and so, you know, she looked at me, and she, the little girl started talking to me in some language, and I shook my head like, I don't know what you're saying. Then she switched to another language, and I shook my head again, I don't know what you're saying. Then she switched to another language. I said, I still don't know what you're saying. Then she switched to English. Then I said, yes. I said, then she, from that point on, the little three-year-old started talking to me in English. So it's just, a, just indicative of the kind of attitude to a language that's so prevalent in Africa. Everybody speaks many, many languages, and they speak them all well. They speak at least three languages, and they speak them all well. And as a matter of fact, you're expected to speak a language as well. 
It doesn't mean because you speak another tribal language. Well, it means that you don't not part of your own your own tribal lineage. If that's not what it implies, it's simply say that language, which is a reflection of humanity generally, uh, if you're going to speak it, then you speak it well. And so, therefore, you know, I, I learned a very, very valuable lesson in terms of importance, in terms of being able to speak the language and not equate it with being white. And so I think a lot of times, you know, uh, uh, we, we these, these calls and, and people would say, well, you know, um, if you, you know, you know, anytime you, you speak um, too well, too eloquently, you speak too quickly, you're not turned off because in their minds you're speaking, you're, you're acting white. And I'm, so what the thing this article seeks to do, uh, at least in my mind, is to dispel this notion that speaking, speaking well well, equates to being white. So, and so in that in that regard, Brother Africa, I'll simply close and not, I'll simply close with that. Could I quickly, Brother Hackey, get you to speak to the issue? Also, what this article implies is by speaking English well, you more you, you have a, more likely a greater chance of having access to wealth and money. What is your position on that? No, I, I initially I said let's just spell that myth right off hand. Speaking English well does not ensure that you're going to have wealth to earn it, high earnings. Uh, I made that point very, very clear initially when I started talking. So I, okay. I agree that uh, I disagree with this, this article which says that equating speaking well with earnings and or at least potential earnings and the reality is that that's bullshit. Excuse my French. That's erroneous. That's false. Uh, the bottom line, because you speak English well, does not. As a matter of fact. I've been in situations where you speak it too well is perceived as a negative by white interviewers who think that uh, you're, 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 you're operating outside, uh, you're outside of uh, uh, your comfort zone or you're operating in a way or you're speaking in a manner in which is not indicative of your people. And so, therefore, they see it as a negative. So, clearly, you know, this notion that, that uh, high earnings are equated with, your ability, equated with your ability to speak English well is bullshit. And, uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll close with that. Brother Anthony, your take on this article? Oh, um, well, let's see. I uh, I share many of the observations that Haki made, uh, but uh, let's see. I would, um, uh, while uh, speaking a language well, any language well, is not a guarantee of wealth. It does. It does help in terms of being able to hold a job, and I, and that does not necessarily necessarily translate to wealth, because a lot of jobs don't pay crap. But, uh, uh, you know, but in any occupation you go into, communication, being able to communicate well, is critical. Uh, to uh, uh, to 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 success on the job. That much is true. Uh, from my experience, the better uh, uh, the the better you communicate, the more options you have. But again, that does not necessarily translate into wealth or or, or prosperity. But it, it it does uh give you options and also it gives you a uh you know a chance at a leader uh a leadership position within your particular occupation now in terms of um you know uh you know social promotion uh let's see it doesn't 
uh, it it is uh, it, a disservice to the students who are the victims of that because it doesn't in, ensure that they've mastered the material sufficiently to go on to that next level and also to uh, you know to to succeed in whatever occupations they decide to go into. And it could be limiting in terms of, uh, you know, uh, possible opportunities. And uh, it kind of like adds to the uh, school-to-prison pipeline in a sense because um, uh, students that have not, uh, you know, that have uh, a, a poor education or have not mastered the material have have fewer options available to them, and they're more likely, therefore, to engage in activities that could get them in prison. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, my take. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, Brother Moses? Yeah, this is um, a real dilemma, um, a real contradiction. Um, um, that they brought to the forefront of um, student. You have a student, um, you don't want them, I guess, to be um, come an adult while trying to get out of high school, I guess. But, um, you know, there's some kind of learning disability or something going on that needs to be addressed, though, um, um, the, so that the student does master the material at each level of the grade before they move on to the next grade. But... But I can see the dilemma where a student's just not getting it, and um, and they're just getting older and older and older, and uh, so you know I can see why why the, there's a, a a tendency to want to promote this, the the children to the next level, even though they haven't mastered the the level they're on, and so you know. Um, I'm I'm not a teacher and uh but uh I can appreciate that dilemma and uh um I'm sure there's teachers dedicated to seeing the students learn and, and uh they're trying to do their best to to, to educate this the child. Uh, and I just hope that that's what's going on. Thank you. You know, panelists, I had some issues with this article in terms of the angle. I think the author was writing towards a particular set of people, a particular set of groups in certain geographical areas. But the contradiction in the article is that it's focusing on an area where it doesn't only just apply maybe, maybe in that area, but throughout the United States. There's a literacy problem, a written problem, of people being able to master the language of English and be able to write very well when it comes to that that possibility, not just in Baltimore City, but throughout this concept of social promotion. He called that social promotion. I ask you, what do you call someone like Matt Lyle, who used to be the anchor person on the morning news, NBC Morning News Today show, someone who received millions of dollars and never had one teaching, one inching, one sense of understanding anything about journalism, but was just to put out in front of a camera, to be put out in front of a camera. 
and giving some information to read. What you call this recent incident of these these Hollywood uh, parents who paid millions of dollars so that kids could enter into certain universities without taking the test? What the heck is that? And even if social promotion exists, the question for me is, what was the conditions that allowed that to be created? So who are really at fault? So I'd just like to hear your response to that um, scenario, the cynical that I just created or stated. Uh, I would, I would, uh, I would say that that is some combination of things, uh, uh, brother Africa. One is the fact that uh, social promotion occurs primarily within the school system, and all and all the, the examples you gave are examples of social promotion, by the way. And I and uh, you know and 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 it occurs even uh, you know within occupations, as you alluded to. But I think uh, I think how it uh, how it hurt, hurts uh, you know African students is that uh, is that one I think it happens because uh, let's see uh, in a lot of cases parents are so busy working to keep a roof over uh, their family's head that they don't have time to monitor what goes on in the classroom. I think that's one piece of it, one. And also there might be uh, there might be factors that uh, uh, health or environmental factors that contribute to a student's inability to learn the material. Such as having a vision impediment. Such as having uh you know um uh, you know, a speech problem or or or, or 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 hearing problem, which is very real, and also uh, also in uh, you know not uh, you know not uh, having an adequate diet, that could affect your ability to learn. Also, if you're hungry, and uh, so all those factors, and I think. Uh, I think that there's several factors that contribute to that, and uh, and also and also how well, you know, uh, you know, a, 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 a student's family life is, because if there's a lot of stress going on in the family and and whatnot, that could affect the student's ability uh, to perform in the classroom. Moses, in response, I think Jackie Moses. Well, yeah, uh, I, I, well, you know the uh, brother Anthony is right. Uh, the social economic implications in terms of education it also is a factor. There's no question about that. Uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm so hard on teachers is because a lot of them uh, refuse to acknowledge the social economic implications in terms of undermining the student's ability to learn, but yet uh, refuses to advocate for those students in terms of creating a, a, a different paradigm to ensure the kids get what they need in terms of they can be the best they can be in the educational arena. So that's why I'm critical of teachers. And like I say, it's all about the dollar bill. And they're not necessarily concerned about the society's impact or society's policies 
and negatively impact on students. But, Brother Alpha, you're right, though. When you look at terms of social promotion in its truest sense, when you look at someone like Dan Quayle, who couldn't spell potato, he's a, a Harvard educator, I mean, an Ivory, uh, um, he's, from, um, he's from the uh, top level of, of top level of universities in the, in the, in the, in the country, a so-called Ivy League, and he couldn't spell potato. Or you have George Bush, who also, uh, who also come from a, uh, a top, uh, top university, who, who, who has very extremely difficult in terms of even putting together a sentence. Then you understand this, then you understand that social promotion is not an impediment, it's only an impediment to the extent that we're talking about people of color. Then that's what it becomes impediment. Uh, you talk about Matt Lara in terms of you know reading a teleprompter. Uh, no one talks about the many, many hours it took for him to get a story right in terms of reading a teleprompter simply because, you know, uh, he had some problems in terms of processing information. So killing is social promotion is always an issue when it comes to people of color. But then again, it's an in interest of society promoted as such. And so this person who wrote the article, I think the, the, the bias comes through loud and clear. But essentially what he was talking about, he was talking about people of color, while negating the fact that uh, social promotion applies more uh, to wealthy people. And so when you talk about the situation where these, these women use their wealth, send their college to some of the best, uni- the best university in the country, in California, one of the best universities in California, supposedly, in California, when you talk about that, they understand the role played in terms of, you know, uh, being able to provide your children for, for whatever that they need, education or otherwise. Uh, so clearly this question in terms of social emotion has to be taken in the context of um, class interest. And so in that context, you know, that we understand that people who run the society, uh, people who are children of those people who have been for society, get a fair shake, whereas those people who are impoverished, those people are poor, uh, those people tend to get a, a, a bad shake. And then, then subsequent to that, to be vilified as incapable of learning simply because of something like a, of, of social promotion. Brother Moses, you'd like to respond to it? I'm not going to say anything right now. Okay, and the last article for tonight that we want to at least uh, touch upon as it relates to our theme today, what's going on past, present, and future, was well, an interesting article that was written in the Titus article. If you get a chance, Google this article up. Um, and it comes from Face to Face Africa, some kind of magazine. Um, the title is Track Star Upset After Biden Administration Withdraws from Her Lawsuit to Pan Trans Athletes from Competing in Girls Sports. And the essence of the article was saying that there are some differences in interpretation in terms of the question of gender, 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 what makes a man, what makes up a, a, a girl, and those trans, transgender individuals who see themselves as born a man but now see themselves as a girl should not be allowed to participate against females who was naturally born females. And what happened was that the Biden administration earlier supported the idea of not allowing transgender to participate in um, female events. Then they switched their position and saying based upon sex and the gender of someone, you cannot discriminate. And um, I just wanted from the panelists in terms of reading this article, a couple of things come to mind. One is comes the ability to define See that things are changing overnight. What we thought was correct 
Now it seems to be challenging, and if anyone has any kind of idea or any kind of substance or doing something that may be abnormally differently, then that can change our perception of what we thought was the truth. So how do y'all feel about this whole question of transgender and its ability to, 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 to participate, even though you may have been born one way, but if you identify yourself another way, you should be allowed to do that? Side with you on this one, Brother Anthony. Uh, I think, um, I think, you know, I think it's, um, it's partly, uh, a cultural issue. I mean, it seems like there's been this trend recently of, uh, people, uh, you know, being born, uh, one gender and yet, uh, identifying themselves as the opposite gender. And, uh, and, uh, let's see. And, uh, it seems to be, um, you know, it seems like, uh, the, the level that, uh, of that has been increasing over the last, uh, you know, uh, 30 years or so. And, um, it might, it may have always existed, but, um, you know, but I mean, but 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 it's becoming more open uh, now, and uh, I'm not sure of all the factors behind that, but I think that uh, you know that the fact that um, that uh, that 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 there is an increasing acceptance of. Um, uh you know uh you know uh homosexuality and transgender in european dominated cultures uh you know uh you know most broadly that uh you know it it seems to be increasing and i think it's uh, a part of it is the fact that it's being publicized a lot more than it used to be uh but in terms of um you know uh how much um uh you know weight uh weight uh, how much it, it weighs among among africans is uh, a little hard to ascertain brother moses your view on this issue Brother Moses, do you have a position? Yeah, this um, politically correct position um, is kind of hard to determine, really, um, because, you know, obviously, if you start off with one gender and and then you identify with another gender and you want to change uh, uh, biologically, you know, uh, it creates this problem where there is this a testosterone and different um, bodily fluids that that males get and and females don't get and and all that and so it, it creates this, this real issue of uh, who which side are you on um, and how do you determine which side you're on um, and it's up. 
I don't know. The government at some point has to has to has to take a position that's um, humanly humane, and uh, and and so I can see how the Biden administration is is trying to take the position they're taking. Uh, um, is at least in form, it seems it seems correct in form, uh, but I don't know if in essence. Um, it's a very difficult issue for me. I, I'm, I'm still, still, still don't know what to do with the, 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 this whole category, this third category. Really, I mean, it almost comes down to a third category, almost, of transgender. And uh, I don't know. I don't want to be bigoted, but um, I can see why why the suit was being filed. That's for sure. Thank you. Okay, panelists and our listening audience, you listen to Africa on the Move. Um, we're dealing with our theme, what's going on, past, present, and future. If you have any comments, any views, based on some of the things you heard, we ask you to please hit one. If you hit one, we will let you speak, and we will nod your last four numbers. You call in 323-679-0841. If you have any comments you'd like to make, please hit one now, and we will bring you in. And we'd like to hear your views, your comments on some of the things that has been discussed tonight. So right now we see that we have some participants. We're going to bring in Carla. Your last four numbers are 7236. 7236. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Your question or comments, Carla. The mic is yours. Yes, call us seven two three six. You can speak now. Call the last four numbers seven two three six. The mic is yours. Going once, hello, twice. hello. Yes, call. Hello, can you yes. hear me? Yes, yeah, I want to thank you all. Yes, I want to thank you for having your discussion this evening. I find it very interesting. Um, one, I think, on the issue of Booker T. Washington, I think, you know, the whole concept of pitting uh, leaders like the boys in Washington, when we look at them historically against each other, I don't think that was at all accurate. I think that they were always engaged in dialogue. In terms of your last uh, discussion, in terms of gender and gender equality, you know, there's a reality that males have uh, a different, they're different not only in terms of, as Brother Moses said, body fluids, but their anatomy in its entirety. So uh, it is going to be a hard question to answer because when we're talking about having equality for persons' sexual rights, then we have to get into what are a person's rights in terms of uh their anatomy. I certainly don't think that women athletes should be having to compete against persons who uh, were male that are now having uh, opportunities to express themselves and their sexuality. Uh, I, I don't. It's going to be a bit of a problem because these persons are not uh, anatomically uh, the same as women, and women just don't have the strength that these persons do. So I don't know where we go from there. But mainly I just wanted to thank you all for having this dialogue. And in terms of social promotion and education, 
social promotion goes on because, as one of the speakers said, you know, there are parents out here working two and three jobs, mothers working. They don't have an opportunity to really direct and pay attention to what's going on in terms of their children's education. More importantly, um, uh, not only do they not have an opportunity to be engaged, uh, teachers feel a commitment to promote these children because they don't want the families to feel like they're not doing the right thing, but because in effect they are. But their economic situation disenfranchises them. They don't have money for great tutors. They can't send their child to some equestrian class. They can't uh, have their child go abroad for six weeks with a group of students to learn another language. They just don't have those opportunities. So that sets them behind the eight ball right then and there. Many parents can't even handle the um, uh, the uh, getting their child into a select public school, let alone being able to handle uh, how to get them a scholarship to go to a private school. And social promotion happens simply because you don't want Jane or Joe to feel disenfranchised or set back when you hold them back a year because they're not, uh, they aren't producing the way they need to. And when you can start this social promotion at a very early age, kindergarten, first grade, by the time they're in the third or fourth grade, they're way behind in this culture. I've, I've met people from the continent who didn't have an opportunity for any education until they were in their teens. But one of them excelled and graduated from Howard University. And he began his formal education as a teenager. So I think we've got to change how we look at education. We've got to change how we look at being promoted to a, a grade uh, from being uh, or being held back. We see it as a punishment when it's really not a punishment. It's just somewhere you need to be to be able to go where you need to go in the long run. So social promotion is something that's encouraged by the public schools in this country. Uh, Parents uh, don't want to think they failed their kids. They don't want to feel like the kids have failed them. And keep in mind, there's so many responsibilities that children have. Children are expected to discuss very complex subjects with their parents that their parents can't even discuss themselves. But anyway, thank you so much. Thank you for your wonderful podcast, and I'll continue to listen in. And, Sister, we'd like to thank you for your contribution to today's program. Next, we're going to call a one 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 six. I believe we still have Brother Neil on. We're going to Brother Neil. The mic is yours. Uh, yeah, I think that um, discussion on Booker T. Washington is very important because, like, um, uh, uh, like Brother Haki said, he's often been presented as a one-dimensional person, a flat character. With with with, with they all always boil him down to one a line and one speech that he made, and, and, and that's it. He's written about eight or nine books, and uh, he says something very interesting. One thing he wrote was that he's talking about Africans in America. He said, we can be a, if we learn to cooperate, we can be a nation. We can be a strong nation within a nation. And, and he was also, you know, like you say, heavily involved in Africa, 
and heavily involved everywhere. He had students coming to Tuskegee from from uh, from uh, uh, Cuba, and when they went back to Cuba, you know, he would tell white folks, "We're learning how to lay bricks," and they were learning how to lay bricks. Now they learn how to lay bricks, but they learn how to make bricks. And the only people that were able to sell bricks were in from for about 500 miles. You had to buy them from Tuskegee. But he was also training uh, architects, and some of the best architects in the United States were working at Tuskegee. Du Bois also worked at Tuskegee. And, 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 and some of those Cuban uh, Africans from Cuba who went back, they went back to Cuba and they built one of the the, the uh, grandest buildings in Cuba is for the for the uh, African I forget the name of this the, the association of, of, of black folks in Cuba and they they were the key group in building that thing so he was involved there he was in, in involved uh, you know uh, in 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 the Philippines you know um, he was in the anti imperialist audience he was all over the place um, so he was. You know, he he was conservative in his own way, but to read to read his stuff, I mean, to read that the uh, Negro, uh, uh, what's the organization of, of of Negro business people back in the day, and they're saying we just bought a block in North Carolina, and we have all the businesses except we renting out to this one white guy. You know, this is the kind of stuff that they were doing. You talk about the uh, what do you call the stuff up in Harlem, the Harlem Renaissance. In order to have a Harlem Renaissance, you had to have buildings, and his folks were buying property in in Harlem. So you know uh, he had his contradictions, and and we have to work out these contradictions, just like we had to work out the contradictions of Du Bois. Du Bois also had contradictions, and um, and and they weren't always as far apart as they looked. Du Bois, just before he went, well, Du Bois, just at the time he was getting kicked out of the NAACP, said he didn't name Booker T. Washington, but he meant Booker T. Washington. He said within the South, and he at the same time he wrote this, he said, I thought I could educate people beyond their racism, and I was wrong. But he, he said that in the South, very quietly, we have created a whole network of schools and educations we have created. And he was talking about the, uh, Washington, what he, Washington and his group had done. One last point on Booker T. Washington. If you want to talk about progressive health care in this country, you talk about social, nationalized medicine. The organization that most consistently talked about nationalized medicine, health care, was the, uh, the, uh, the National Medical Association, which is all African association of doctors. One of the leaders was Booker T. Washington, personal doc physician, and they up and they had the longest consistent. That journal was published at Tuskegee, and they had that journal had the longest con, consistent support for national health care, social what they call socialized medicine of any group in this country, bare none. And they only stopped in the 1950s because of the McCarthyism. But they kept that thing going from like the early 1900s up to 1950, maybe the late 1890s. So, so yeah, he had, and he had some good things to say about socialism in some of his books. So people, people have kind of haven't seen that, but he's a hell of a cat, uh, a hell of a, uh, he was somebody, I, I should say, uh, that way he was somebody who really did a lot for our people 
and I'm glad he's getting his due. Uh, I was wondering if this, if that was Sister uh, Tyreen Wright who wrote that book. Is that Tyreen Wright who wrote that book? Hello, am I still here? Yeah, brother, I hear you. Without having to, let me get back with you. I will confirm that about next week. Um, oh, okay. When I was looking at the article, I don't have it available to me right now. That's oh, why I just okay. can't put it up. My computer going sort of whack on me. Yeah. Um, I yeah. can't can, can, sure. I, can I say one thing about the agenda thing, too? Um, uh, yes, you can. Go ahead. It's interesting that the left in Europe, the, 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 the I guess you might call it the feminist movement in Europe, is taking a different position than the one in this country. And they are saying, you know, they are saying that, you know, women, you know, people who are genetically women, born women, you know, cis women is what I guess the, the word for it is, should not have to compete with, with uh, transgender people because of the, in, in, in athletics. And I think one of the one of the ideas of the whole tr- idea of trans fluid more fluid transgender identities is that you can't be stuck into like this binary man or woman thing. And so if you can't be stuck into this binary man or woman thing, you shouldn't try to put people in people people who are transgender are part male and part female. They have aspects of both. Uh, in, in them, and 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 uh, you know, and they have you know what the native people call people of two natures and, and and whatnot. And so I think I think on this on this question, I would go with some of the the right wing people on this, but I'm not, but not being right wing in the same way that they want to go with it. The other thing in the in the transgender piece that I think we have to take a look at is so many young people are being encouraged to have uh this uh, 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 sexual reassignment at an early age and 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 start getting getting um treatments hormone treatments at an early age because they're uh, feeling some stuff but everybody every teenager goes through some kind of angst or whatever you call it and you, I think you should be older before you make that decision. One set of data that I looked at said that 20% of some of the young people who had sexual reassignment, that is when I say sexual reassignment, they, were, they had their sexual organs changed over to the you know, other sex. 20%, one out of five, wanted to change back later, but they couldn't really. I mean, in the way that they had been. So I think we have to be a little more cautious on this stuff and not move so quickly in terms of uh, and 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 uh, understand that some of this. There was one school out in Oregon or somewhere out north east where fifty percent of the students say that they were transgender. How can fifty percent of the students be you know transgender? Um, so there is like one of your um, panelists said some of this. Might be because there's so much uh, publicity in the, in the, in the, out there in the media that people are kind of buying in, and and I don't have I understand that there are a lot of people who are transgender. There are a lot of people who uh, uh, 
because of what they call gender dysphoria, uh, need to make that switch. Some people <clears throat> actually have been reassigned at birth because of mistakes of the doctor. Doctor might uh, fool around and destroy your, your your penis while they're doing a, 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 a you know a, a, you know what they do. And then they assign you as a, as, as a girl, and then and then later on you don't feel that. So, I mean, there's a lot of things, but we I think we need to be a little slower and more cautious about how quick we are to go all the way with some of this stuff, and and let people uh, get to a certain age before they make some of these decisions in terms of gender reassignment, uh, especially those kind of gender reassignments that that are are you know you know that that are that you can't really go back on once you once you do them and i i think i think some a uh, 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 kid might have the feelings uh you know kid can be can be gay at birth and stuff like that but whether they are really another gender that's a whole nother question and that's i think we need to um not close that discussion out entirely but i think we need to have a period where we give people some time to experience some things in life before you make you make that decision totally um especially for somebody who is who hasn't really entered puberty or only beginning into 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 puberty and and, and those kinds of things uh, so uh you know those are my um you know thoughts on on those uh, two issues We'd like to thank you for your comments, Brother Neil. And I would like to say one of the things I have noticed being when these educational institutions, particularly at the early stage of dealing with students who are elementary students, they are beginning to take on these 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 these, these behaviors, homosexual behaviors at a very young age. They are being exposed to it, and that too can have a I think a big influence in terms of how people think and perceive themselves, you know, at that very young age. But anyway, um, there's the audience and panelists and participants. What we're going to do right now, we're going to quickly take a break, and when we come back, we're going to ask each one of y'all for your final thoughts on today's program. You are listening to Africa on the Move.
Mama Africa, you know, make a life. Welcome back to Africa on the Move. As Brother Africa, we are very thankful that you have allowed us to come to your homes this evening where we can speak truth to power and to provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. That's to help liberate the people and to help liberate humanity from all the various forms of oppression. Our theme tonight was what's going on, the past, present, and future. At this particular time, we'd like to remind you that Africa on the Move is a weekly radio program under the banner of the African Awareness Association. For those of you who listen to this program, we encourage you to join our new committee we are created called Friends and Supporters of Africa on the Move. If you're interested in becoming a friend and supporter of this radio station, Please email us at Africa on the mood number two at gmail dot com. We building our relationships. We are putting together a, a committee that will make the station become a powerful vehicle that will be the voice for African people and all those who are being left out of the so called savage media. This is your platform to speak truth to power, but more importantly to share information with our people so we can thank. So on that note, please Join our committee, and you can do that again by emailing us at AfricaOnTheMood, number two, at gmail.com. So in closing out this particular program, what's going on, past, present, and future, we would like to ask all of our participants and panelists to just give us their final thoughts for tonight. We'll start with our sister, who lasts for numbers uh, seven, two, three, six. Your final thoughts for tonight, our sister. Let me get this out. Because I need the keys. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, I forgot my cookie. Cookie. Seven, two, three, six. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's your final thought, my sister. Hello. Okay, I guess you'll have the thoughts for tonight. Anything you'd like to say? Your final thoughts. Let me see. Let me see. I'm sorry. Hello? Yes. Yes, for final thoughts. Yeah, I just yes. want to again thank yes. you guys. And again, um, as I said, I, I really think that the boys and Booker T were uh, working together and we had to be careful in how we spoke and uh, at the same time supporting each other. And I think they were supporters of each other. In addition, I don't think that someone is anatomically male, no matter. I know that he may feel differently. I don't think women should have to compete with people that are anatomically male. I and that's what, the, and that's what the lawsuit is about with his sister challenging that same thought, my sister. Again, we thank you for your participation. We hope that you tune in next week and share the word. The Africa the Moon is on every Sunday, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. We thank you for your participation. And right now, what we're going to do, we'll go to Brother Neil. Brother Neil, your final thoughts for the night. I, I, I missed the, uh, the earliest part of the show, but, I, you know, I think it was a very good show. I think the information is timely. And uh, those three um, topics that you mentioned, um, were very important, you know, education of young people, uh, the question of uh, how we identify, you know, this question of gender identity and, and, and what it means, 
uh, I think is very important, and 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 really this this piece on Booker T. Washington, I think, is really coming at a great time, because um, like uh, Brother Haki said, we have to really see the how each of us is complicated. We're not just a one track, one piece thing, and that we have different ideas. And like the sister was saying, there was a lot. There were differences, but there were also collaboration between. Uh, du Bois and, 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 and Booker T and, and, and others, and, and you could go in any local areas, like in Richmond here, where you had people like uh, Maggie Walker, who was friends of both, and uh, and, and a Garveyite, a Booker Tite, and a, and a Du Boisite. And so you, you see that all across the country. So, um, so you know, these, these questions that people try to make them um, – one way or the other way, and and really we see they're more dialectic, more dialectically involved, and more, uh, um, you know, more uh, more complex than than what they are have been presented to us. So I think that was a great, great presentation. Thank you, Brother Neil, for the days for your. Con- your contribution to today's program. And right now we're going to move to Brother Moses. We're going to ask Brother Moses to give us his final thoughts for the night, Brother Moses. Yes. Well, let me just say my name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school year, 1968. I called Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse the correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And thank you, and good night. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, well, time is short, so let me be very succinct. Uh, the thing is that uh, we're under tremendous pressure in society in terms of just our longevity. If we don't formulate strategies in terms of long-term survival, then we're in real trouble. We need institutions, we need organizations to ask the question in terms of which way forward. Having said that, Brother Africa has always encouraged people to unravel the matrix that is key to our survival in society. And having said that, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. Before we go with Brother Anthony, I would like to make an acknowledgement to the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, for an excellent job well done yesterday, March the 20th. They held a African Women Emancipation Day webinar from 12 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The theme was Emancipation of Women is the Precondition for the Emancipation of Man and Women Fighting for Socialism social justice, and revolution. We'd like to thank all the participants. It definitely was a global Pan-African particular program. We'd like to thank everybody who played a part in making it a success. And for those who like to who have not seen the program, who like to see, it, see the program, please take some time and go to their website, um, which is www.a-aprp gc.org. Let me say it again. It's www.aprp.gc.org. They will be putting it on their website, and that was an excellent program dealing with women oppression. 
So right now we go last but not least, Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for the night. Yes. Um I think uh I think the articles we discussed tonight uh underscore the importance of really understanding our history and doing our research thoroughly. And uh and I think it's important that we pass on these lessons to our youth. And also uh I would encourage all Africans to join an organization that is working uh, to achieve Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, because that is the ultimate solution to the problems Africans face throughout the world. And also, and you can learn... uh, 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 about that, in, a, by, in addition to visiting uh, PRSP's website, you can check out uh, the AAPRPGC's website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thanks Again. for having me on. Again, we'd like to thank everybody, thank our participants, thank our listening audience. We thank our friends and supporters and remind you that, again, if you'd like to become a friend and supporter of Africa on the Move, please email us at Africa on the Move, the number two, at gmail.com. As Booker T. Washington understood that the degree of success is directly depend to depend upon the degree of how much the people support us. So we need your support. Come help form and join this committee to help build this institution, Africa on the Move. Again, we'll see y'all next week, same time, same station, 9 p.m. Spread the word, and that's always subscribed to go forward, Apple, backwards, never. This has been Africa on the Move.
theorists. What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man? I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did it's way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seem like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to fear people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence, or forever be our own downfall. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it seal our fate. Fight behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. Be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if Mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter. It'd be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you're looking for will be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man laid dead in the street today. There's a difference between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because... This country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt, it must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced. It has to be replaced. 
There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism, and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come and will come. 